Acts 2.47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those that were being saved. Two chapters later, Acts 4.4. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And that's a church growth. Isn't it? Then Acts 6. The word of God kept spreading. The number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So even the Jewish priests were coming in to the kingdom of God. So the church at Jerusalem was growing by leaps and bounds. But persecution had also come to Jerusalem even earlier. And you know, Saul was instrumental in starting that persecution. But the current need that Paul mentions here to the Corinthians was not one that had risen just because of the persecution alone, but because of a, um, a continued a general depression or a famine that was going throughout the land. To remind you of a little bit of Saul, Paul's previous life, in Acts 8, now Saul approved of putting Stephen to death. And that's a sermon in and of itself, how Saul went from approving of stoning Stephen to one of the... Uh, apostles that contributed most of the New Testament. But now Saul approved of putting Stephen to death, and on that day a great persecution began in the church at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles, and some devout men buried Stephen and mourned loudly for him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he would drag away men and women and put them in prison. <laughs> I wonder sometimes how much how he thought back on that and what kind of driving force that was for him and his current run as an apostle, as his current service. But those current trials that, we, that this offering is for, the collection for the saints, were primarily tied to that famine in the area. In Acts 11, one of them, one of them named Agabus stood up and indicated by the Spirit that there would definitely be a severe famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Now, we hear, hear first about Paul and Barnabas bringing alms from Antioch around A.D. 44. And that would have been about four years into the famine. And then we hear from Romans that the conditions were still quite severe several years later. And note that 1 Corinthians was written about A.D. 53. And this famine was still going on. Now, there were many, fam many famines during Claudius' reign, which was from 41 to 54. And the most severe occurred near the end of his reign, from 46 to 47, I guess right in the middle. So the church at Jerusalem was going through of hard times. Not just because of the earlier persecution of Saul, when I'm sure that many of uh, the believers lost their jobs, were run out of the area, uh, lost everything that they had but also because the famine had been in the area for several years and continued to go on. And one of Paul's justifications for the primarily the Gentile churches, helping out the primarily the Jewish churches, such as the one that was in Jerusalem, is given in Romans 15, Romans 15, 25. Paul says, But now I'm going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the, their spiritual things, talking about the Jews' spiritual things, they, the Gentiles, are indebted to do them a service also in material things. 
So because the Gentiles were sharing in the spiritual wealth of the Jews, talking about the things of God, surely they would owe them a debt on the material things so the Gentiles could meet the Jews' needs. Second Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 8.1 Now brothers and sisters, we make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. And here the grace of God is basically talking about material goods or financial help for those um, gifts for that church in, Jer in uh, Jerusalem. But he's talking to the second Corinthians. He's talking to them and saying, Now, brothers and sisters, we're telling you about the grace of God which had been given in the churches of Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave voluntarily. This is the Macedonian saints. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, speaking, knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you also excel in this gracious work. I'm not saying this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love as well. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich." I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. So the second letter to the Corinthians, which came later, Paul is talking about, well, you've been collecting for now for the saints for a year. So this is not some kind of short-term collection for a need. Hey, we've got a family, had a house burned down, let's take up a collection. This is a year-long collection that had been going on by the time... Paul writes the letter, the second letter to the Corinthians. Probably his third letter, but the two we have. So based on the way chapter 16 begins, it's fairly clear that the subject of the collection for the saints, as it's called, had already been introduced to the Corinthian saints, probably through the earlier letter or by individuals that were traveling in the area. So they knew of the church at Jerusalem. They knew of their financial needs. And Paul makes it clear he wanted the Corinthians to give to these other saints as they themselves had prospered. And it would be a basically a fundraising that would last at least a year, which each person given as they were able, putting aside funds each week for those who were in dire need in Jerusalem. Now the text says that this putting aside was to be done on the first day of each week, which by this time would have been recognized as, as Sunday or the Lord's Sabbath. Now, and although the funds could have been given to the corporate church, you know, bringing all the tithes into the storehouse, everybody's familiar with verses of Malachi, bringing all the tithes in the storehouse so that, you know, we're not lacking in any good thing. I don't think that was the case here. I don't think they were stored at the church until Paul returned. And most commentators I read think that the funds were probably kept at the individual's home until Paul returned. Since probably wasn't even a secure place to keep them or a designated, designated individual like a treasurer to keep track of those funds. Now this passage does not teach that this offering was typical and represented a pattern for giving on a regular basis hereafter. But, but it was a designated gift for a designated need for a designated group of people, the Jerusalem church. 
And then once Paul arrived, the funds would be carried by representatives from the church at Corinth that they themselves had chosen, and then with Paul's own letters of explanation and exhortation, encouragement. And then it says if the situation was appropriate, then he would accompany them as well. And so I'm thinking if the situation is appropriate, what does that, even, what does that mean? If, does that mean if I'm allowed to go or if the timing's right? Or, and every commentator I read, this was kind of funny when I was reading this, what that means is, is that if it was a big enough offering, Paul would go himself. If the funds, the amount of the funds, you know, were something worthwhile, then Paul would accompany the funds as well. And I thought that was kind of funny how that's, how that's brought about because, you know, if, if they raised $3, you know, it would kind of be sad for, you know, an apostle to travel from Corinth or from Ephesus to, uh, to Jerusalem. You know, here's your $3. You know, big, big group of people standing behind $3. Kind of be silly, wouldn't it? But yeah. So anyway... Verse 5, Paul tells them next about his travel plans. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia. Remember, he was, he was collecting for the saints at this time. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I do not want to see you now just in passing, but I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But... I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he has no reason to be afraid while among you, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So do not look down on him, anyone, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brothers." So Paul was in Ephesus during the writing of this letter, but he had plans to travel through Macedonia, probably to gather those offerings that they were collecting there, and then to proceed to Corinth to spend some additional time with them. And he did want to spend that additional time with them, as indicated in verse 7, but he realized also that the Lord may have different plans for him. You know, when we say, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that, you know, what is it, that, you know, the... Why, the Man makes his own plans and the Lord laughs, you know. The Lord changes our plans a lot of times, right? If the Lord wills, then I will do this or that. Which is what Paul says here, if, if the Lord permits. So Paul had planned to remain in Ephesus until Pentecost so that he would have an opportunity to, to proclaim the gospel to a wide group of people who still observed that feast, or that festival of Pentecost. And although he also says that there would be many adversaries... There will be many adversaries during this festival at Pentecost in, in Ephesus. Now, if you remember, Ephesus, we talked about Corinth being a city of uh, idolatry and, you know, pagan rituals and, and ser- sacrifices and just you name it, they had it was bad. Well, multiply that by two and you have Ephesus with the Temple of Diana or Artemis with the, you know, the silversmith making the little shrines and casting Paul out. And these men, they're tearing up everything. Get rid of them. You know, they're the, the, the temple prostitutes, you name it. So Ephesus was worse. So when Paul says that you know, there's many adversaries, I think that's part of the things that he's talking about here is when he's going... So the... the, the the festival of Pentecost, everybody's going to be piling in to Ephesus for the celebration. And the city's going to ramp up. So you can imagine now this 
Ephesus, this temple of Diana, this, this idol worship, all the things that are going on there. So it's going to ramp up because they're going to meet the needs of all the visitors that are coming in. And Paul says there are going to be many adversaries. So I can imagine what he's expecting. Where most of us, me especially, would go the other way, Paul instead goes toward the trouble. Because he sees that as an effective door, a wide door of, of ministry that could be open, where he could reach a lot of people that are traveling through that area. Many adversaries. If you remember from 1 Corinthians 4.17, when he's, he says, For this reason I have sent you Timothy, who is beloved and faithful child of the Lord. He will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everyone in church. At a few chapters back in chapter 4, Paul had already told them that he was sending Timothy to them. Chances are Timothy, chances are. I do not think that Timothy had arrived yet. I think the letter came by a different route that Timothy probably came um, through ministering as he came. So I think he was a little bit later. But Paul had sent Timothy to them, but I don't think he arrived yet. But he does mention that you know when Timothy does arrive, take care of him. Protect him as a fellow minister, as a worker in, in the gospel. Protect him from the many adversaries of the gospel. And, and when it's time to leave, take care of Timothy. Provide for him. Take him to the, the, the ship or the walk him some distance away. Provide for his journey. Send him, Paul says, in peace. And then Paul does give some, some final instructions to the group at Corinth. In verse 12 he says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, who the Corinthians were of course very familiar with, I strongly encouraged him to come to you with the brothers. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has the opportunity. I think that's kind of funny in a way. You think of Apollos. Remember, he had his following at the church at Corinth. Yeah, I'm of Apollos. Remember that? So he had a, a grand following there. But Apollos was a good teacher. He was, he was apt at his trade, so to speak. So I'm, and I'm thinking maybe Apollos doesn't want to come back to this church that stirred up so much strife and, you know, fell off the, the grid and, left the narrow way and was in the weeds with the immorality and the suing each other. And I, and I wonder, what did Apollos think of this? And I think that was not the case with Apollos. I think that he actually wanted to come, but he was busy, had other plans. He was ministering in a different area. And, and from the, the, the studies I've done, Apollos and Paul were not together at this time. It wasn't like Paul could, you know, listen, I'm, I've encouraged him. I've put the strong arm in him, but he doesn't want to go. That's not the case at all. Instead, he, he told Paulus he would really like for him to go to Corinth and instruct him a little further on in the, in the gospel message and in the, the doctrines of our Lord. But he had other plans. He was, doing, he was busy doing something else. But he was going to come as soon as he got done. So concerning our brother Paulus, I strongly encouraged him to come to you with, with the brothers that he was sending. But it was not at all his desire to come now. But he will come when he has the opportunity. And then he leaves them with some final instructions concerning their Christian walk. Verse 13. And each one of these you could do a, a complete sermon on. Be on the alert, Paul says. Stand firm in the faith. Act you like men. Be strong. All that you do must be done in love. 
We'll stop there just for a second. Stand alert. Stay alert, he says. Don't let your guard down. Satan, what's he do? What does Satan do upon the earth? He, do you remember? Travels to and fro about the earth like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Stay alert. Watch out for these things. They've already fell into several different traps of Satan. Right? The pride, the, the arrogance, the... I have the special gift of speaking in tongues. All the, the different things that they had fallen for. Stand firm, he tells them. Don't, don't let your circumstances determine what you believe or how you'll live, live your life. Just as you've received the grace of God in your lives, continue to remain faithful to Him who's called you. You know, circumstances sometimes become hard in our lives. We have to go through hard things. Oh, my car blew up. Oh, this happened, that happened. Um, it's, it's my fault God's punishing me or whatever. No. These are circumstances. Circumstances are just God's way of dealing with us. Just good providence. It's, it's all good. Of course, we could, Romans eight twenty eight. right? All things work together for good to those who love God who are called according to His purpose. Right? Everything that happens in our lives is for good reasons. Stand firm. Don't let the circumstances that you live in now determine how you will be. Well, I'm, I lost my job. I don't feel like going to church. I don't want to tell everybody. I lost. No, stand firm. Walk as you should, no matter what happens in your life. And then this one, act like men, be strong. Act like men. And I think this actually came from Deuteronomy 31.6. When Moses was informing him he would not be able to go into the promised land with the rest of the, the, the Israelites, he said, Deuteronomy 36.1, So Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I'm 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to go out and to come in. The Lord has told me you shall not cross the Jordan. It is the Lord your God who is going to cross ahead of you. He himself will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who is going to cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them just as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will turn them over to you, and you will do them, you will do to them in accordance with all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or in dread of them, for the Lord your God is the one who is going with you. He will not desert you or abandon you. Moses tells them, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid of those who are going in to dispossess the land. You're going to kick them out. You're going to slaughter them some. So I think that's where Paul gets this, act like men, be strong. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean to act like a man? It means you do what's right whether anybody's looking or not. It means that you, you do the right thing. I don't feel like good. It doesn't matter if you feel like it. Do it, right? I'm too tired to read my Bible tonight before I go to Do it. Act like a man. Straighten up. Quit being a crybaby. Not, not literally, but... Do the right thing. Be a man. Man up. How many times have we heard that phrase in different forms and fashions? Be a man. Don't be a coward. Don't be a, a baby. Now, he says, act like men, be strong. And although Paul had planned on returning to the Corinthians, you know, he must have felt it 
necessary to encourage them in their current situation and to rely on God and not necessarily Paul. I think that's one of the reasons he tells them, you know, act like a man, be strong. Do the work whether I'm there or not. Do the work whether Paulus is there or not. Do the work whether Timothy gets there or not. Just do the right thing. You know, the Corinthians has already been part of, you know, what happens when a flock picks out those particular men to follow instead of the God of all creation. You know, sometimes it's hard. It's, it's, it's easy to focus on, well, I like so-and-so or, you know, Patrick's the man, right? Well, what are you going to do when Patrick, as a man, when he falls? What are you going to do when he leaves? Or is your faith going to crumble? Is your faith in a man? Or is your faith in God? You know, Paul had already worked through this with the Corinthians. Did, did Apollos die for you? Did Cephas, is he the one that raised from the dead? No, our, we need to keep our, our focus on what we need to focus on. The God of creation. And that was one of the first things that Paul had to correct in this letter when you know, they were talking about, I'm a Paul or Paulus or Cephas. And instead of following individuals who always have the faults and the, the shortcomings, we need to follow Christ. And when we do that, we will be strong. We will act like men. So just as Israel, they had seen the destruction of Pharaoh, so they and we must remember that it is God who is immovable. It is Christ who died for your sins. It is Christ who died for your sins. It's Christ who gave men to the church for its edification. To continue on in verse 14, he reminds the Corinthians that love must be the motivation for their service. In verse 14 and 15, he commands that whole household of Stephanus. He first mentions them in chapter 1, verse 16, as well as Fortunatus and Achaicus by implication. He, mentioned, he takes care of all of those. But he reminds them that they were some of the first believers when he came to that area and they were worthy and deserving to be submitted to for their teaching and for their instruction. And Paul himself had given account of, been given account of the affairs of the Corinthian church by them, presumably they may have been related to that household of Chloe that we read about earlier in chapter 1. He says that he'd been refreshed by them when they traveled to Ephesus. And now Paul rejoiced that they would be able to go back to the Corinth, the city, and continue to instruct the, uh, the Corinthians until Paul was able to return to them in person and winter there. And that's similar to the exhortation that he gave those in, in Thessalonica about taking care of the ministers that come to your area. You know, I, I think about when we had our, um, our denominational meeting, we had you know, some elders in from different areas of the, um, different areas from, I guess, Pennsylvania all the way down to what, Atlanta, Georgia, or different places, and, and they were well received. They, were, they felt welcomed here. And I, I think about things like that. That's, that's what we're doing. We're welcoming in ministers we're doing the Lord's work. You know, in Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you also are doing. But we ask you, brothers and sisters, to recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you in the Lord to, and give you instruction that you regard them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. And I think our church did regard them very highly for their work. Not necessarily in our church, although some of them had spoken here, but just in their work in, in the service of the Lord. So I was, I was 
they were very uh, pleased and happy with the way they were treated here. So I thought that was, that was encouraging to us anyway. Verse 19, Paul's greeting or his goodbye. I didn't look this up, but you know, usually you give a greeting at the beginning of a letter, don't you? Well, here we get it at the end, which was kind of normal. Verse 19, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca, or Priscilla, greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. And all the brothers and sisters greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own, my own hand, that of Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, Aquila and Priscilla, they were known by the Corinthians. They had been there before and, and lodged there. And actually, Paul had stayed with them. They were tent makers all together. So they all um, stayed together in, in the Aquila and Priscilla's lodging. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Oh, exactly what does that mean? Do I see fear in some of your eyes that, that when we leave today... Patrick's going to give you a holy kiss. Or maybe it's me. <laughs> that strikes fear. Okay, so what exactly does that mean? And that, that same instruction, this is not an isolated instance, but it's given in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Romans 16, 16, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, 1 Peter 5, 14. It's not an isolated instance. So, starting next Sunday... The kiss, the kiss was a common greeting and, and it was used extensively for many years, you know, in the Mediterranean region in the east and it's still used today by some. They'll kiss, you know, on one side and on the other. The French, I think, still do that. They greet each other with a kiss. It's a, basically just a, a show of, of love or how they greet their family primarily, right? I've, I've got people in my family that when they see you, they want to give you a kiss on the cheek. I don't personally do that. I shake hands, right? Or I give them a hug. But some people greet each other with a kiss. And I think that what Paul's reference to this holy kiss, it's, it's something beyond just a simple kiss of, of greeting that family members would use to express love, you know, particularly after an extended absence. You know, when you see somebody that came back from a tour of duty or, or whatever, maybe they've been to school for a uh, you know, for a semester, they come back and they run. Everybody runs up and they hug each other. Sometimes, you know, they'll kiss them on the cheek or whatever. But usually, you know, if, if you're coming home at the end of the day, you know, and you see your kids, you know, not that many people will kiss them. But now in different cultures, you would see that happen a lot more. But here it's not necessarily a, a cultural thing. But I think Paul is saying here is take that, that, that greeting. Make, it's a holy kiss. It's a greeting of familiarity. It's to show love. It's something to be shared among believers. It also would have indicated a type of equity among believers. You know, when we talk about there's no more slave and master, there's no more male and female, there's no more... We're all equal in Christ. We're all equal in Christ. Look around. I mean, there's no first-class Christians and after, you know... Second class Christian, third class. We don't have that. We're all equal in Christ. Man, woman, child. We're all equal. No more masters and slaves. We're brothers and sisters. 
But it also would be a way to, to show that there was no animosity or hatred or anger among believers. You know, if you got mad, if you got a mad on against somebody, he'd, last thing you want to do is give them a kiss, isn't it? So it kind of needle you a little bit about working out your differences, especially if you know, well, I've got to go kiss this guy. Now, primarily, this kiss that was shared was among men among men and women among women. It wasn't a, a kiss of that had any sexual overtones. And I think it was done specifically for that reason that it was kept, you know, between the same sex so that there would be no sexual overtone. And as I mentioned, it was more of a, a fa- familial greeting used around family. But who are we? Are we not family? I have blood kin, and I have spiritual kin, and I'm probably closer to many of you as my spiritual brothers and sisters than I am with some of my own family who are unbelievers. We share a lot more in common. We have the same master. We have the same God. We have the same goals and desires. What does light have to do with dark? So this greet one another with a holy kiss, I think, had a, had a lot of um, uh, a meaning to them at this time. So greeting your brothers and sisters in Christ with a kiss on the cheek or on the head, that just, that's just as appropriate as greeting your family with you know, a kiss between relatives, maybe after a long, long distance, long distance apart. So if all this is true, shouldn't we just, we're giving up handshakes. Now we're going to reinstate the holy kiss. Huh? Okay, so David wants to be first, so... <laughs> so we have to hold David one person holds him <laughs> so should we instead forego that customary handshake and rest? no there's nothing no, there's nothing wrong with with the holy kiss that's practiced in the you know the eastern countries and and but it does raise a few concern in today's country today's culture you know first we have to recognize that the holy kiss after the first century when it was done in religious circles it was only you know men with men and, and women with women they were kept separate, and that's probably to respect that husband and wife relationship as well as you know preventing any of those sexual connotations or misunderstandings. And secondly, we have to consider whether or not this holy kiss is that a command from Paul. If it's a command, you know, then we need to follow that, don't we, David? Or is he simply just using the current greeting of the day and giving it some kind of special emphasis so that the believers understood the special relationship that they each had with one another? Remember now, this Corinthian church was, they were, they were divisions. They were factions among this church. So Paul's saying, stop this. Stop. Instead, greet one another with a holy kiss. Be reconciled. Deal with that animosity that's between you all. Recognize that you're brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a lot in common. More so than the family that is in darkness. So I would say that that's the, the, the deal here with 1 Corinthians 16 is, is the latter. He was, Paul was ex, just trying to deal with his church at, at Corinth and some of the other ones. You know, whether we greet each other with a kiss or, or a hug or a simple handshake, the, the special relationship that we all have with one another should be the driving force of our greeting. And to make the holy kiss our new standard, instead of shaking Patrick's hand now, we all got to give him a kiss on the cheek. Pretty soon that's just, it's going to be the normal thing. It's, it's not going to mean anything. 
So what means something is, you know, what gives you the, the, the special feeling that you are loved. You are part of the family. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. You're brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a relationship. So that holy kiss, after a while, it's not going to be any more special than the handshake that we do today or the hug. It's the love in our hearts that should make that greeting special. Verse 21, he says, This greeting is in my own hand, that of Paul. In typical of Paul's letters, he did include a handwritten portion so that the authenticity of his letter would not be doubted. It would be verified. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in, each, in every letter. This is the way I write. So Paul even says, listen, this is the norm. You can expect to see something handwritten from me. Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. So here we have Paul's explanations about those who actively and knowingly reject the Messiah. They're to be accursed. If anyone does not love the Lord, he's to be accursed. They are cursed by God. And then he throws in the term Maranatha. And that term literally means the Lord comes. And I think that would indicate that those who reject Christ, they, they are accursed. And, and when Christ comes, they will be finally and, and fully, fully cursed at the Lord's coming. Now, if you think about the, the timing of the book of Corinthians to the destruction of Jerusalem... This could have referred secondarily to that judgment to come if Paul was a prophet and he could foretell the future. Because that was only a few years away. But I think it refers here to the final, that eternal judgment which would be pronounced at Christ's second coming. Verse 23, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So Paul's last two verses... Laberia's heartfelt desire for the Corinthian believers that the, that the grace of the Lord Jesus would fully supply all their needs and would empower them to live their lives. And he also asked that they would understand how much love he had for them as fellow brothers and sisters in, of Jesus Christ. And then he says, Amen, or the Greek is Amen, which simply means, so let it be, or this is the way it is. So when we say amen and amen, what we're, when we're saying amen, it's a closing of a prayer. Like the Lord's Prayer, we say amen, so let it be. That's what we're saying. So Paul here, when he's getting ready to close this letter to the Corinthians, he leaves them with the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The same grace that called them, that empowered them to live that holy life. He prays that they would understand that and that they would recognize the love that he had for them all in Christ Jesus. Thus ends chapter 16, and the book of 1 Corinthians. Have any questions, comments? I know you're tired of hearing me, so I wanted to finish this up today, despite Jim's prodding to uh, uh, continue on. Uh, Luke's going to be teaching next Sunday. I think then we're going to be looking forward to uh, Jim opening up Psalms to us. Are you going through the entire book of Psalms? Okay. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for your word, Lord. I pray that you would uh, take uh, uh, your word, that you would impress it upon us, that we would understand it completely and fully. And Lord, that you would take uh, uh, these uh, efforts today, Lord, that you would uh, 
help people to go back and read through the, the scriptures, especially First Corinthians, as uh, we finish that now, that the, you would make it come alive to uh, each and every person in their hearts and their minds, and that you would convict them of sin and of righteousness, that you would teach us in a, to walk in that manner that pleases you, that you would give us that, that hunger for your word that instructs us. Lord, we think about the Corinthians and how off track they've uh, they gotten that the, they progressed to with their, their litigation, their suing each other, and their, uh, their hatred, their, their drunkenness, and their sexual immoralities. And, and Lord, but yet we have your word completed. We have the canon of Scripture, and yet sometimes, Lord, we don't even read it. We don't study it. We don't memorize it. We don't hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. Lord, convict us of our sin of apathy and teach us to spend time in your word that it might keep us from the same issues, the same problems, the same sins that the Corinthians fell into. We ask now that you'd be with Patrick in the service to come, that you'd bless his preaching, that you'd bless our hearing and our listening, that we'd be able to pay attention. And, and at the offering of uh, uh, the Lord's Supper today, we would realize what a blessing it is to have fellowship one with another. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.